0: Today we're joined by Lord Norton of Louth, who's been described as our greatest living expert on Parliament and a world authority on constitutional issues. Lord Norton has been a Professor of Government since 1986. He has served as the convener of Campaign for an Effective Second Chamber and previously sat on the Constitution Committee in the House of Lords. In this episode of the Codex Cast, we will cover areas such as the House of Lords and the House of Commons. So without further ado, thank you, Lord Norton, for joining us. My pleasure. I think I'm right in saying you've dedicated your life to the study of Parliament and the Constitution. So what is it about constitutional law that you enjoy so much?
1: Um, that's a very good
0: question. I mean,
1: it's, it's one of those things that um, I've always been fascinated by, parliament i'm one of these nerds who got the interest in the institution when i was extraordinarily young and i was actually engaging with politicians from about the age of 12 or 13. so uh, fascination by process um and the nature of politics because parliament clearly is that part of it although parliament's not the body that makes law it's the body that gives assent uh, to law and coming back to my earlier point about the discipline of politics Politics is about the resolution of issues of public policy where there's a dispute. Obviously, if there's unanimity, there's no dispute, there's no politics. If it's imposed, you've got a dictatorship, there's no politics. But where there's a dispute, there's debate. Resolving issues is core to our political life, it's core to stability. And, and so, Parliament clearly is part of our political system. So, how it's structured out it to is absolutely crucial to understanding how we go about. Uh, determining issues of public policy and of course how this compares with how it's done elsewhere so it, it's really that fascination with the process uh, and then just the way that parliament itself actually operates in, in fulfilling that um, I just find the parliamentary process um, intrinsically uh, interesting how it's evolved over time uh, how it relates to people um, in terms of choosing Members of Parliament, how the Commons operates, how the Lords relates to uh, the Commons. There's always been that fascination simply by understanding uh, the process.
0: So Westminster as an institution contains many traditions. Some would argue weird and others wonderful. And one pertinent example is Blackrod and the role they play uh, in the ceremony of the opening of Parliament, where Parliament slams the door in Blackrod's face as a symbol of the authority of the House of Commons. So could you discuss some of the traditions which you find the most interesting?
1: Well, we we have a lot of, uh, as you say, a lot of traditions. I mean, they don't take up that much time, but they are important, particularly symbolically. I mean, where traditions have lost their purpose, we've generally got um, rid of them. um, They're no longer pertinent. I mean, it used to be the case in the House of Commons, if you wanted to raise a point of order while a a division, a vote was going on, you had to uh, have a hat on. So they used to have a, a, a ceremonial top hat, one of the ones that would flatten out. If anybody wanted to raise a point of order, it had to be thrown to them so they could put it on to raise a point of order. And it was realised that was a bit silly, so they did away with it. Um, there was no practical relevance and no great symbolic relevance. Whereas other traditions there are, which you've touched upon. Black Rod, who has quite a busy day job, but when it comes to state opening, has the ceremonial job of going to the House of Commons, knocking on the door. And the door being slammed in Black Rod's face. Now that is symbolically important because Black Rod is actually a, a crown servant, and it's to symbolize the independence of the Commons that they're keeping uh, Black Rod out. Um, and similarly, another great tradition, which is somewhat controversial, it is uh, the state opening of Parliament. That's when the two houses come together and actually joined by senior judges, justices the diplomatic the Queen's speech. Now this is symbolically important because it's the one occasion when Parliament is actually meeting, it's gathered together, so when the two houses join, so because legally Parliament is the Queen in Parliament, this is the one occasion when the Queen is present with her two houses. It is symbolically important and of course she reads out the speech indicating the government's programme of session. So it has constitutional significance um, Members of the House of Lords get slightly irritated nowadays because whenever you get stories about the House of Lords and people want to discuss Lords reform, there's always a picture accompanying it of the state opening of Parliament when peers are wearing robes. The one occasion only when peers wear robes and has no practical significance of the work the House does. And it's not the House of Lords, it's actually the state opening of Parliament. It's Parliament gathering in the Chamber for Lords, but it's not the House of Lords as a legislative body. So that rather irritates us and we would like to do away with those pictures being carried and quite a number say well perhaps we should stop wearing our robes someone else point out well even if we stop they'll use old stock photographs of us in our robes um, but the occasion itself as i say is is symbolically important so we do have traditions uh, that reflect that and quite often it is those that reflect the separation within our system between now crown and parliament and in parliament between the two chambers differences there. So they, they, they reflect that. And I think that does have some constitutional symbolic importance without, as I say, taking up a great deal of time. So it just sends out the
0: significance of the relationships that are still at the heart of our constitutional system. So on the topic of the House of Lords, you know, for many, many years prior, the House of Lords included hundreds of hereditary peers. The House of Lords Act 1999 abolished all but 92 hereditary peers and reformed the Lords into a chamber uh, which primarily features appointed Lords. So could you explain the benefits and drawbacks of both hereditary peers and appointed peers? And which of the two do you think is the optimal type uh, for the House of Lords to primarily consist of?
1: Well, I think the House of Lords over the past 56 years has reinvented itself because, as you say, there's the 1999 Act. But prior to that, there was the 1958 Life Peerages Act. So that was the first one that, apart from law lords, allowed members to sit for life to be um, given a peerage for what they themselves had done without the title carrying on beyond their lifetime. So you started to see the growth of life peers. They became a significant element, but a minority. The 1999 Act, as you say, swept away uh, several hundred hereditaries, and they'd been the dominant until then. So the two acts combined completely transformed our second chamber from one based on the hereditary principle to, if you like, one based on the merit principle that so we like to meritocracy. a um, meritocracy. Because of political negotiations, the 1999 Act, as you say kept 92 hereditaries uh, to or her ex-officio, so it's 90 in practice who... Serve in the House, it's probably important to say they were themselves elected from all the hereditary peers to carry on, um, and it was what I'd regard as a sensible election. They were elected to carry on because they got something to offer. They were specialists in a particular area, they're being particularly active, and so on. Um, and de facto, they themselves are the equivalent of life peers because their seat in the House doesn't carry on to their heirs, if one of them dies under the act, another hereditary is brought in, but they're elected from outside peers and 15 of them are elected by the whole House. So it tends to be a case of selecting somebody who's got qualifications, you can see why they'd be a member of the House. Um, now, obviously there's an issue about whether that should continue, but so long as it that's how it operates. So, As a result, there's not really much of a difference in practice between hereditary and live peers in the way the chamber um, operates. So the only way you can tell the difference is through the titles, not through the actual activity in the house itself. So what they contribute, uh, hereditary peers, is pretty much the same as live peers. Um, There is pressure to get rid of that hereditary element to close off the by-election option so we don't have more hereditaries coming in through that uh, route. But even those members who are pressing for that take the view that the hereditaries who are currently members of the House should remain, they're becoming in effect by peers. It's for the future that the option would be closed off, so we weren't electing hereditaries. And any hereditary peer who came into the House would come in as a live peer on their own individual merits uh, and not through this particular route.
0: Yeah, so the the House of Lords in its current form seems to be quite a controversial subject matter, Uh, some argue that it is an archaic and maybe an undemocratic institution which costs a country far more than the benefit it accrues. Others argue that the ability to combine leaders in various fields such as business and industry with those experienced in politics allows for a uniquely effective chamber which can scrutinize legislation from the House of Commons, as I mentioned. You've previously served as the convener of campaign for an effective second chamber. So, what is your view that the, um, what is your view of the House of Lords as it currently stands, and are there any reforms uh, that you would like to see implemented? Yes, quite a few, but it's working within
1: the existing appointed house because of the two views you identified. The House of Lords doesn't cost actually uh, a great. Deal compared with uh, the House of Commons or, for that matter, the European Parliament. It, it's fairly lean in its organisation structures, it Peers, of course, aren't salaried, but they can pay an attendant allowance, but, um, the cost of the public first uh, head of the member of the House of Lords is something like a quarter or one-sixth that of a member of the House of Commons the last time they looked at the figures. Um, so there's an argument, I think, it provides value for money in what it does. Uh, and it adds value to the political process and in terms of the principle you can justify it on democratic note it's, it's undemocratic as if that's self-evident case and it isn't so the house adds value by doing fulfilling tasks that otherwise would not be fulfilled it complements the house of commons accepts the primacy of the Commons, which is relevant to the principle and um, So, it seeks to complement it by doing things the Commons may not have time to do, or the political will. So, the Lords focuses very heavily on examining the detail of legislation. The House of Commons determines the ends, the principle, we don't challenge that. We focus on the means, the details of a Bill, could it be improved, could it be uh, reworked in a way that would actually deliver its purpose more effectively. And that takes up most of our time. And we're able to do that because as the membership, something you touched upon. The house is a house of experience and expertise. Members are appointed usually because of positions, they've held it, cabinet secretary, chief of the defense staff, head of a great charity or trade union and so on, or because they're the leading experts in their field in science, philosophy, medicine and so on. So they really know what they're talking about. So they add value because it's distinctive from the commons where members elected to represent their views to promote their constituents, to promote their parties, but without necessarily being the experts because they get elected at a fairly young age. Lords tend to be appointed fairly later in life when they've established you know, their expertise and well. So we're able to look at it from a different perspective and, in that sense, uh, value. And we make more of a difference to the detail of legislation than the House of Commons. Uh, and ministers generally admit when a bill finally goes through that the work in the Lords has really improved the quality Of the legislation. Um, Government has to take the House seriously. No government has a majority in the House, so you can't guarantee you're going to get your way. You've therefore got to take it seriously. So again, that differs from Commons because in the Commons you've got the politics of assertion, because the government's not got a majority. It knows it'll get its way. One side faces the other. Um, In the Lords, it's more the politics of justification. Government's actually got to work at it, persuade the rest of the House that what it proposes um, merits um, support. So, a very different atmosphere, somewhat more bipartisan. People listen to one another regardless of party. And there's a lot of discussion informally between the different stages of a bill. Some of the forward. ministers will talk to them informally, see if agreements can be reached. So, the Lord's hands value, particularly in terms of legislation, valuable as well in scrutinising public policy um, particularly through select committees um, some very um, effective committees distinguishable from the commons we don't have departmental select committees because that would duplicate the commons so we go for cross-cutting issues like constitution economic affairs international relations and science and technology um, uh, uh, as well as set up committees each year just for that one session to look at particular topics. so we do an awful lot of work which adds value complements the work of uh, the Commons, if we weren't doing it, wouldn't get done and whole chunks of bills would never be scrutinised because some bills come to us from the Commons where they've not had the time to go to the bill. We don't have any uh, programme motions, all amendments that are put down to the bill are discussed. So it ensures a very thorough scrutiny. So we add value to the work of the Commons and the Lords can be justified as an appointed chamber. As a result, we accept the privacy of the elected house which ultimately could override us, but we don't usually challenge it in a way that makes that necessary. Uh, And that relationship fits within um, the concept of democracy. because democracy is about the choice of who's going to govern you. Um, Government is rule of or by the people. So it's how people choose who's going to be the governors if they can't do it themselves. And that is done through elections to the House of Commons. So government is chosen through elections to the House of Commons. Party with an overall majority forms the government electors know who they're electing and they know who to hold to account. They put the government in place on a particular platform. If it doesn't perform as they wish, they can get rid of it at the next election. So there is what I term core accountability. There is just one body responsible for public policy, the government. And I say, that operates through the House of Commons. We don't challenge that, we add value, but without challenging that fundamental principle, now, if you had an elected second chamber, it would demand more powers than the present one, you know, and indeed use the existing powers that we don't. Because why not? They'd claim, well, we've got democratic legitimacy, we're electoral legitimacy, we can challenge the first chamber. Now, if you've got two elected chambers in dispute, having to do deals to get something through, government loses control of the process. And the outcome is such, as a result of deals between the two chambers, electors don't know who to hold to account no longer the government. Do so they hold the Commons or the Second Chamber, the Senate or whatever to account? So you lose that core uh, accountability and I think that would actually be, um, limit the electors because they wouldn't be have one body, they can hold to account for the outcomes of public policy. So the Lords as an appointed chamber is justifiable on de- democratic grounds and in terms of the way it actually carries out its job. Now within the House, yes, the Campaign for an Effective Second Chamber has pushed for reform within the framework of an appointed chamber. We've actually been responsible for various changes, including acts of parliament. One that allowed us to get rid of members who committed serious offences, allowed members to retire, got rid of members who didn't attend for a whole session, and we've got another act through as well that gives us the power to expel members if necessary, extend their power to suspension. Um, Further reforms, we want to reduce the size of the house We're too big. We're looking at ways we can slim it down. On principle, we think we should be no bigger than the House of Commons. And we're looking at our structures and processes. We think what we do, we do rather well. We think we could do it even better. So we've recently been reviewing our committee structure to see how we can reform that, particularly once we leave what well, we have now left the European Union. So the committees we've used to scrutinise European Union law no longer relevant in the way they were before the scape for replacing them with other committees. So we have been looking at how we can strengthen what we do to reinforce uh, our fulfilling our functions even more
0: effectively than
1: presently fulfilled.
0: So on the point of the reform of the House of Lords, uh, the Waken the Wakeham Report, which was published in the year 2000, contained many proposals for reform of the House of Lords. One of which was supported by the significant majority of those on the commission and stated that represent, uh, representation should be extended beyond the Church of England to embrace other Christian de- denominations in all parts of the United Kingdom and representatives of other faiths. So do you think that, um, that the Lord Spiritual, uh, which are the bishops who serve in the House of Lords, should be further extended to include other religions and even denominations, or should it solely be uh, for the Church of England? Uh, in principle, I agree with what Wakeham recommended, and I think that would be a
1: general uh, view. It's slightly misleading in the sense that, as you say, the Lord's spiritual are uh, the two archbishops and the uh, Church of England, three ex officio, Durham, Winchester, London. Um, and and people do tend to focus on them, even though, how should I put it, they're not always... The best um, and so what it omits is the fact we've got rather a lot of members of the House of Lords who are drawn from other faiths. So they're not actually there because of their faith, although Lord Sachs was appointed to the chief rabbi. And um, they're appointed for other reasons, but you know, they're drawn from the main Christian religions. We've got Jewish members, Hindus, Sikhs, we had a Buddhist, we've got a Farsi, Zoroastrian, and we've got rather large humanist uh, association in the Lords as well. So we've got peers drawn from a wide range of religions. But of course, there is the focus on the Lord spiritual because they are there um, established by law. Yes, in principle, we should be having other faiths there, you know, as the spokespersons for those faiths. Um, The problem is not one of principle, it's one of practice. It's fairly easy having the Anglican bishops in, because there's a hierarchy. You've got archbishops and bishops, so the senior ones can be appointed. The other one, obvious religion with a clear hierarchy, is the Roman Catholic Church. The problem there is does, it's the church. They don't let priests serve in legislatures. So you know, there have been attempts, not least to uh, get Archbishops of Westminster, or those who have retired, like Paul MacMurphy and Connor, the ones who to get him into the house. And that advanced fairly well on, I think. And then it was blocked, but not by the Lords. Um, so that's the problem there. That's not us. Now, with other faiths, you've got the problem of they're not necessarily hierarchical. So it'd be a case of do you leave it to them to determine who it would be. Obviously you've got a problem with Quakers because you've got a completely flat authority structure. So it'd just be a case of deciding how do you want to do it. i say in practice quite often you get them in any way. So members of the House, we've got several um, um, who have uh, one or two I think have retired, but who've been presidents of the Methodist Conference, for example. Uh, as I say, we have the Chief Rabbi. Uh, we've actually got who, who are uh, rabbis in their own right, um, uh, and we've got various others who are um, you know, ordained clergy who sit for other reasons. Um, so, as I say, it's a practical issue. How do we choose the religion? What we just hand over them and say, you know, nominate or something like that. So, it's it just making progress on the practical elements. I don't think there's a great objection of principle. To uh, achieving it, so the argument would be, how do they do it, and uh, 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 it's sort of implicit in Wakeham, um How do you divvy up the allocation among the other religions? So, but that again, you know, it's a, it's a practical point. So, not averse to you know taking it further, seeing what progress uh, could be made on that, because we do actually benefit enormously through having these members who are drawn from wide range of religions, wide range of other backgrounds. The more diverse we are, uh, the more we benefit from people being able to bring their particular perspective and particular experience to them.
0: So we've touched on the allocation uh, maybe between the different religions and different religious uh, dom- denominations, but um, there, there's been criticism of the existence of lord spirituals in the house of lords the british humanist association uh, said it was unacceptable that the uk is the only western democracy to give religious representatives the automatic right uh, to sit in the legislature uh, so is the existence of the lord spiritual an infringement uh, of the principle of the separation uh, between church and state
1: uh, yes um because obviously they are part of the legislature and in, in a way it does reflect the nature of our state that initially everything was uh, uh combined, and of course, both the particularly the lords comes out of the king's council, which predated the emergence of the house of commons. Um, which is when you had uh was a combination of the earls and barons and the the, the leading pre- prelates. So, the church of England was very much the force that's been very much part of our history, if you like, it is still. Uh, a part of it and it's not just in house of lords of course because the church of england is by law the church established so it's still part of the uh if you like the, the state structure. So that's a distinctive feature of our uh system now whether you want to keep um bishops as of right in the way that we do you could slim it down uh brings them in on their merits and it's not unusual for lord spiritual once they've retired they're the only members of the house who retire on they're uh, uh and they're not peers; they're Lords of Parliament. But once they retire, if they've been particularly active, quite often they're made life peers. So we get them in anyway. Uh, Lord Harris, for example, used to be Bishop Boxer. He sits on the Cross Bench; and he's given life peerage. Um, typically, former archbishops are made life peers. So you, you could bring them in in their own right anyway, without doing it on a uh, you know an established basis. But that's the origins of it. um you know, initially the prevalence was very much to the fore, it's only over time that they have become a, you know, much smaller element uh, of uh, the
0: legislative process. So now I think we'll go on to questions about the House of Commons. So what are your, your views on the United Kingdom's executive being drawn from the legislative branch compared to countries like the United States, where the legislative, legislature and the executive are separate institutions? Oh, I think it's very beneficial to have a parliamentary
1: system, in a way, for reasons I touched upon earlier, because it provides for accountability. Um, government is drawn through the legislature and answers to the people through the legislature. So as they've got court accountability, it's the government that's governing, and people know who to hold to account. Now, once you start to divide that a separate election, uh, a presidential system, which is denoted by the fact the head of state is elected separately from, uh, the legislature you've then got problems for accountability. You might say, well, you've got direct accountability, but you uh, in terms of the individual who holds the office, you don't necessarily have core accountability in terms of the policy that results from the political process. so if there's a conflict between say the president and the legislature, um, who do people hold to account for the outcomes? So you see the problems in the United States because you can get conflicts between. The executive and the legislature and of course within the legislature two elected chambers conflicts between the two houses so at times you've got the problem deciding well who is responsible for the domestic policy of the united states who do we hold to account so you get conflict uncertainty uh, and most especially um, a decision-making process that's fairly opaque because deals are struck you don't know, you're not privy to that deal-making process. You just get the outcome. And who do you hold to account? So we know from studies that have been done, there's not much relationship between what Americans want and what Congress produces. So there is that um, problem in the nature of the system. Um, lots of elections, but not necessarily core accountability for the outcomes of public policy in our system, you've got that, that's the value of our system and the nature of parties, because you you elect a party, it's got an overall majority in government, people know who who to hold to account. The rare occasions that doesn't happen, as we saw with the 2019 uh, Parliament, you can see some of the problems arising in terms of who governs, who do you hold to account? Because to some extent, during that short Parliament, Policy was being determined by a transient majority in the House of Commons, not a body that could be held to account by the electors. So that was the exception. The danger is if you have separation of, well, separation election, separation of election between executive and legislature, that would more likely become the norm.
0: So you, you touched on essentially what I was going to ask you next, which is that the Fixed Term Parliaments Act 2011 has come under fire for the impasse it arguably caused in 2019. When Prime Minister Boris Johnson found himself uh, with a minority government, he lost the DUP as informal partners, but he couldn't call a general election due to the two-thirds vote requirement for a snap election under the law. And this was until the early Parliamentary General Election Act 2019 was passed, uh, which was abnormal in that it bypassed the constitutional law of its time through the standard simple majority vote to pass the legislation, which arguably renders the Fixed-Term Parliament Act 2011 as potentially uh, you know, useless. So, what are your views on the Fixed Term Parliament Act, and do you agree with the notion that it should be repealed and replaced? Um, you touched on a very. Your last two words are extremely important, and replaced, um because
1: if you just repealed it, Parliament would continue in perpetuity. Um, because the 2011 Act repealed the earlier legislation, the Septennial Act, as amended by the Parliament Act, stipulating the five-year maximum life of a Parliament. Yes, the 2011 Act um, was. Uh, a compromise measure, it was rushed, it was part of the coalition uh, agreement. It hadn't been thought through in terms of the initial uh, proposal. It didn't include uh, provision for the House of Commons to remove the government through passing a vote of no confidence, which is actually a fundamental point at the heart of our constitutional arrangements, government rests on the confidence of the House of Commons. Um, injecting the provision for an early election through a two-thirds majority, limits government the reason you've touched upon. Um it's got to go to the House. So in effect, that provision gives a veto power to the opposition, because it can not vote for it, which would block it as long as it's got at least a third of the members of the House of Commons, which normally it has. And of course it doesn't have to vote against. It doesn't say we're voting against in that election. It can say we've got reasons well, you know, it won't work. We'll abstain. And that's sufficient because the act requires a two-thirds majority of all MPs not two-thirds of those voting so it gives a veto power to the opposition and when you think about it technically as well to backbenchers who could stop uh, it happening and as you say Boris Johnson found himself blinded by that now the only way around that is either passing a separate act as happened eventually by a simple majority uh, to get it through although it applied the uh, basic rules for the 2000 it applied the provisions of the 2011 act operation of the election and the sort of resetting of the election or the alternative is for the house to pass a vote of no confidence in the government and that's sufficient by a simple majority and the act stipulates it has to be that this house has no confidence in her majesty's government so a government can no longer bring forward a motion of confidence in itself if that's defeated it doesn't bring it down it has to be a motion of no confidence not the defeat of of no confidence So all sorts of problems attached to the 2011 Act, as we've seen. So some arguing, something you touched upon, said initially, oh, well, it's a dead letter because obviously the Commons will always vote for an early election, as we discovered, uh, no. (laughs) Um, And uh, Boris Johnson three times had it voted down. Uh, Couldn't get it through. Um, So there is, I think, a general view that needs to be replaced. The Constitution Committee and House of Lords is taking an inquiry at the moment. And under the 2011 Act, there is a requirement anyway because we got this inserted when it was going through the House of Lords for a, a, a formal review of the Act. This year, well actually now between June and November of this year, has to be reviewed, committee has got to be set up and come forward with recommendations as to what happened to it. But I think there is a general view um, that it needs to be replaced um, and I think you'd probably find broad support for reverting to a five-year well keeping a maximum five-year life but within that allowing the um, prime minister to recommend to the crown a, a dissolution of uh, parliament and fresh elections called you'd have to provide for that now by uh, uh, statute because as I say the earlier legislation has been repealed there's a there's an argument as to whether the prerogative would automatically come back but you'd still have to provide in statute for the maximum life of uh, uh, a parliament, so I've just put it all in a um, a replacement act, or you could amend the 2011 act, just keep the provisions for the actual electoral process, five-year maximum, but take out section two dealing with you know the supermajority for the early election, and, and just put in provisions to revert to what existed before 2011
0: so the parliament act 1911 and 1949 reformed the house of lords for example by replacing the right to veto bills with the right to delay bills uh, from the house of commons so what are your, your views on the parliament act 19, 1911 and 1949 and the way in which they reform the power balance between the house of Lo- uh, house of commons and the house of lords well one can do quite an extensive analysis i say that because i've
1: actually <laughs> written various articles on the passage of the 1911 act it was by name insert that the outcome it shows the nature of politics the uh what the initial view was how it's going to be dealt with was different to the actual act uh, that got onto the uh statute book and the dispute at the time was do you change the composition or do you change the powers um and eventually the government pressed for and got through the act which as you touched on, limited the powers so we can only delay legislation, um, which don't really use the power anyway, except since the 1949 Act, it's only been used four Um, times. But it was used in 1911, the government opted for that, because that's the quick option. You just limit the powers. If you start messing about with competition that would take uh, a a great deal of time. They did put in the preamble that it was sort of a temporary measure until you could ha- have a house chosen on a more representative basis um but um governments have been a bit reluctant to sue that because it also made it clear that if you changed uh, that made it on a more representative way, you'd have to revisit the powers of the house as well um and, and so governments have been a bit reluctant to follow that through because um it'd been given more power to the second chamber which therefore would limit government dominator which is not, has its domination in the first chamber. And um, so, yes, it was a political act um, by a liberal government to get its way, given that it was in danger of being blocked uh, by a conservative dominated um, House of Lords. But it's interesting that the debate itself wasn't really about the principles of the relationship between the chambers. So it wasn't some grand debate about what is the role of the second chamber in our, our political uh, system, um, whether you were for or against House of Lords reform wasn't about your role as how you saw the principle. It was whether you were for or against Irish Home Rule. Um, because the House of Lords at the time was seen as an impediment to achieving Irish Home Rule. If you're against Irish Home Rule, you saw the House of Lords as some great constitutional bulwark to be defended and admired. If you wanted Irish Home Rule, you're all for law, changing the, the Lords and limiting its powers. So the bill could be got. Through, Uh, and once you got the Parliament Act and said the powers of the Lords were limited, opponents of Irish rule then shifted the focus and suddenly decided that referendums were perhaps a good thing. So particular provisions of our constitution, the second chamber, the use of referendum, um, and not necessarily advocated, you know, from first principles on their own merits. They're, They're means to an end. This is the outcome we want. What's the way to do that under our constitution? If it's not achievable under existing means sort of been the argument for referendums it's never been argued on its merits it's um you know whatever proposed i want to get through can't get it through the existing parliamentary process oh well let's try a referendum we might know what we want that way so it, it as i say it was the politics of the period that, that mattered the views on irish Home rule that largely shaped views on what to do with the house of lords and um, and it was got through because as i say the liberal government wanted to achieve change the lords were seen as a blocking and um, and so limiting the powers was, if you like, the quick way uh,
0: to do it. So you touched on referendums there. So what are your views on referendums as a, as a means by which we can uh, you know, make decisions uh, in our country? Uh, well, I've always argued against them on principle.
1: I'm unusual for actually taking a principle stance for the reason I've just touched upon. I get extremely annoyed when colleagues used to come up to me and say, well i'm again i so agree with you i'm so against referendums except on x x being their really key project they wanted to get through and didn't think they get it through well i'm sorry you're either for or against them on principle not as a means to an end uh, and they're undesirable because they do challenge the core accountability of the political system because electors can't hold themselves to account for the outcome of a referendum so you know, you hand it over to government to deliver on whatever the outcome is, and if you don't like it, it's well, it's it, it's too late. Um, so you need, and it militates against deliberation of considering options. Because the great thing about the parliamentary process is that proposals come forward, they're deliberated, uh, and the Commons, the procedure in the Commons, you've got a dominant party, you've got a majority, but the processes as such, as to ensure that both sides of the debate are Heard, and so you've got, if you like an even playing field in terms of the rules, hearing the arguments, and so on. Um, and you can consider a range of options. So you can move amendments. Now, with a referendum, it's a blunt tool. Generally, you're for or against, yes or no, or two mutually exclusive propositions, as with the EU uh, uh, referendum. Uh, and then you've got problems about how to ensure an even playing field. Um, can you limit the spending of the two sides rather than one outspending the other. We've actually attempted to do that, but it, it's problematic. Um, uh, and what happens if all the mass media are in support of one side and argue for it and so on? So there are problems with process, how we structure it, ensure, if I say, uh, debate, and making sure you've got a question that is unambiguous and unbiased. Un- um, so the Electoral Commission can advise on that um, uh, and tries to make sure you've got you know a fairly clear view. But as we see at times, people debate, well, what does that one side mean compared to if we vote for uh the other? So it doesn't necessarily determine you know, a result people want to come back and say, well, it's very close, we should have enough referendum. And, Uh, and so on. So there are all sorts of problems attached um, in practice, but mine is more to do with the the principle of it. Um, We should resolve issues through a parliamentary process, because you do actually have core accountability through that. Um, Strictly speaking, referendums are unaccountable.
0: So you touched on that instead of referendums, uh, you know, these issues should be resolved, uh, you know, in Parliament. But what happens if you find yourself in a situation where you know, the public's opinion uh, vastly contradicts uh, Parliament's opinion, and there are no parties which can, you know, actually win and be- become the government. So how how would, you deal with, how would you deal with that? Well, usually they then
1: get parties coming up that can deal with it, movements coming up very quickly, as we saw with the, you know, with uh, Brexit party and so on, and actually getting most seats in the European Parliament and so on. Um, so what tends to happen, I think the, one of the benefits of our system um, because that core counter in the way we do elections, um, government is responsive in between elections for the very reason I touched upon earlier. It knows it can lose the next election. So it can't assume, oh, we can do it for you know, we might lose support, but we can have a form of musical chairs, do post-election parking stay in office. No, you might be swept out of office. So you can't ignore electors in the interim. So if there's clear public support for a policy, government doesn't. Normally, just ignore it. Um, it. It may adapt, modify, uh, and you've got the opposition challenging it, it if it doesn't. So, as the other parties may come up, uh, and people can then support those if they feel so strongly on the issue that the issue itself is paramount and uh, superior to the other issues that, that parties are associated with. So, I think the system is sufficiently. Uh, adaptable simply because you maintain that accountability if the government's not delivering what you want you get rid of it.
0: Well we've come to the end uh, of our conversation and and this was great thank you very much thank you very much for joining us Uh, so we covered the House of Lords we covered the House of uh, Commons and many issues in between so again thank you very much for joining us and hopefully I'll see you again. Yes it is my pleasure thank you very much.